Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, October 24th, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, Hyundai's earnings slip in the third quarter. Toyota scrambles for an EV reboot. And a look at why Tesla is cutting prices in China. Plus, Energy Innovation Sarah Baldwin provides a primer on the Inflation Reduction Act's impact on electrification. The policy passing was step one, and we've got many steps to come. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Hyundai's profit margin was squeezed in the third quarter as recall costs offset growing sales, while revenues jumped 31% from a year earlier. Operating profit slipped 3.4% to 1.55 trillion won, or about $1.07 billion. Setting aside certain provisions, such as for that massive engine recall we told you about last week, operating profit would have soared to more than $2 billion, the company said. Hyundai says it will focus on luxury models, crossovers, and EVs to achieve what it expects to be record high earnings this year. That's despite persistent challenges such as inflation for raw materials. The Korean automaker said today that it believes the chip shortage should ease in the fourth quarter. Meanwhile, a dealer in one of Hyundai's largest U.S. regions is suing the automaker for withholding inventory. Central Avenue Hyundai of Hartsdale, New York, claims it's being punished because the store has not opted into Hyundai's facility image program. The nub of the complaint has to do with discretionary allocations a common industry practice in which a manufacturer awards additional vehicles to dealers as it chooses. The dealer's lawsuit says its allocation in the first quarter of this year dropped more than 40% from a year earlier. Hyundai Motor America maintains it has the right to reward dealers as it sees fit. Toyota is considering a reboot of its electric vehicle strategy to better compete in a booming market that it has been slow to enter. Four people with knowledge of the still-developing plan told Reuters that the automaker has halted some work on existing EV projects. If adopted, the new proposals under review would amount to a dramatic shift for Toyota and rewrite the $38 billion EV rollout plan the Japanese automaker announced last year to better compete with the likes of Tesla. The sources say a working group within Toyota has been charged with outlining plans by early next year for improvements to its existing EV platform or for a new architecture. They say the review was triggered in part by the realization by some Toyota engineers and executives that Toyota was losing the factory cost war to Tesla on EVs. Toyota said it was committed to carbon neutrality but declined to comment on specific initiatives. Speaking of Tesla factories, CEO Elon Musk's appearance over the weekend in the northern Mexico state of Nuevo Leon has sparked local speculation that Mexico could be a candidate for a future Tesla investment. Musk says he wants the automaker to scale to, quote, extreme size, and new factory announcements are possible by the end of the year. The Millennial newspaper reported yesterday that the tech billionaire met with Governor Samuel Garcia and local economic development officials to analyze the possibility of installing a Tesla plant. Meanwhile, on the other side of the globe, Tesla is cutting prices on the Model 3 and Model Y by as much as 9% in China. The price cuts were posted in listings on the company's China website this morning. The cuts also follow Musk's comment last week that a recession of sorts was underway in China and Europe. 
and Tesla said it would miss its vehicle delivery target this year. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, with Musk believing a recession may be underway in China and Europe, do you think a possible factory opening in Mexico could help sustain Tesla's rapid growth? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And if they're going to hit his growth targets, they've got to find another place to build a factory or two. They've got to get new ones started because the Texas and Germany plants are kind of starting to get ramped up. You know, the ambitious goals, you know, 50% growth until they reach like 20 million vehicles a year. That's the size of, you know, Toyota plus VW put together. It's really audacious. And But if he's going to keep getting there, especially with, you know, serious headwinds in Europe and China, Mexico may be the right place to do it. Interesting. Coming up, what does the Inflation Reduction Act mean for this ever-evolving EV landscape? We'll hear from Energy Innovation's Sarah Baldwin next on Daily Drive. Slate Money is a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the world of business and finance. Hosted by Felix Salmon, Elizabeth Spires, and me, Emily Peck. Confused by crypto? Can't keep up with the metaverse? Wondering why the price of just about everything keeps rising? The Slate Money podcast is here for you. Listen to Slate Money every Saturday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. A new paper from Energy Innovation takes a hard look at the likely impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act on electric vehicles and transportation more broadly. The nonprofit think tank's electrification director, Sarah Baldwin, recently spoke with our own Pete Bigelow about the paper and how she thinks the new law will shape electrification going forward. They talked on this week's episode of Shift, a podcast about mobility. Here's a piece of that conversation. Uh, do you like what you see in the Inflation Reduction Act? I mean, no doubt the Inflation Reduction Act is an unprecedented climate and clean energy policy that the United States has long needed. So across the board, you know, with the $370 billion going to a range of investments, it's going to help the U.S. cut greenhouse gas emissions roughly 40% by 2030. It's going to help stimulate domestic supply chain and domestic industry. It's going to you know, help households and consumers and businesses alike. So there's tons in the IRA that I do think is, uh, you know, amazing for so many reasons and so important. So it couldn't have come at a better time. Uh, we we know that we need to be moving really quickly if we're going to uh, not only address climate change, but also mitigate harmful pollution and get our economy up and running. So I think this is a fabulous policy. Uh, from the transportation side of things, there's there's a lot there, uh, and I know we'll we'll dig into that. And you know, I'd say there's some really good stuff, largely, and then there are some things that uh, we're going to need to make sure we pay close attention to and uh, make sure we're emphasizing the implementation piece. So there's a lot yet to be done. Uh, that's kind of a key takeaway: is that the policy passing was step one, and we've got many steps to come. All right. Maybe uh, a 30,000 foot view question uh, before we dive in. Do you, in terms of emissions reductions in transportation, do you, do you see enough in this bill that, uh, that curbs climate change to a point where we stay below certain temperature thresholds uh, going forward, at least from what we can do from an American perspective? So unfortunately, the answer to that is 
No, it's not sufficient. Uh, you know, the transportation electrification incentives for both vehicles and infrastructure, as well as the domestic supply chain and manufacturing are all really important. Um, and as I said, the fact that these are uh, kind of 10-year extensions, they provide a certainty and a level of predictability that we have not had in the transportation space for electrification especially. So both of those things are, are really important and not to be understated. However, uh, based on our modeling, uh, it's, it's not enough to cut the transportation sector greenhouse gas emissions, particularly at a pace necessary to align with a kind of a 1.5 degree Celsius scenario, which we know we need now for a safe, stable climate um, and a future for everyone. <laughs> so, you know, our core messaging really is that more policy and regulatory actions are going to be needed to accelerate the emissions reductions in the transportation sector. Speaking of that modeling, uh, tell me about the energy policy simulator that uh, Energy Innovation created and and what does that do? What specificity do you see with that? Yeah, well, I definitely want to give a shout out to the team on my end that created this uh, energy policy simulator. This is not my baby, uh, but we do use it quite a lot uh, to inform our thinking around policy and it's open source. We use data that's publicly available. It's available on our website, energyinnovation.org, for anyone who wants to go tinker around and see what's in there. Um, but basically, it allows us to take a closer look at the different levers across different sectors, everything from transportation and buildings to electricity slash power sector, um, industry and agriculture and land use, and evaluate the impact of various policies not just on greenhouse gas emissions reductions, but also other pollutant reductions, uh, job creation, and other public health and consumer benefits. We like to say it's a, it's kind of the tool to check our guts on is a policy good slash is it going to scale emissions reductions at this you know the pace that we need, and what kind of benefits does it bring to um, to the economy and to to people. So we, we rely on it a lot for that. Um, and we did extensive modeling of the IRA and all of the provisions, uh, at least the core provisions, the kind of the big ones. Um, and that's where we found, you know, running it compared to business as usual. We had kind of a low scenario, moderate scenario and high scenario. And so we were able to evaluate uh, different future cases of implementation and how quickly things will scale up and ramp up. Because uh, as, as I said, there's a lot in that bill. So trying to figure out how it's all going to play out in the next 10, 20 years is uh, quite a complicated thing. The folks who do the modeling are the experts at figuring out how those numbers crunch. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting reading. Uh, you had that very wide scope in the business as usual scenario to uh, you know a best case scenario where there's rapid adoption and deployment Um Give us give us an idea of how those scenarios play out. What are the kind of the, the key differences in them, and uh, and how EVs might penetrate the uh, light duty uh, vehicle fleet? Yeah, so just taking a look at the transportation sector provisions, uh, which of course is 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 what your audience and listeners are most interested in, I'm sure. Um, so we looked at, as I said, a low, moderate, and high scenario, and we evaluate the core incentives and provisions that we a can model based on you know what we know and and data available um, and future projections so namely the 
passenger EV tax credits, um, you know, which is up to $7,500. The new eligibility requirements for buyers and vehicles within that have a big role to play in those different scenarios. We also looked at the new commercial EV tax credit, which is uh, 30% up to 7,500 for light and medium duty vehicles and up to 40,000 for heavy duty vehicles. Uh, we also look at the, the expanded EV charging incentives, both for individuals as well as um, larger scale kind of commercial DC fast charging installations. And then we examined the battery production tax credit, which is a new tax credit for creating batteries here in the US and uh, stimulating that domestic supply chain. And that's a $45 per kilowatt hour incentive. So those are the core incentives and provisions that we modeled. And again, relative to a BAU, which we assume was no new policies, uh, kind of had we not passed IRA, that would have been the trajectory. Um, so in the low scenario, we look at the, the, the new passenger tax credits provisions uh, pretty scrupulously. And we assume that really none of the battery PTC benefits that are, are intended to attract uh, the domestic supply chain and, and thus be able to meet the new provisions, the qualifying provisions for battery components and um, critical minerals, that no uh, benefit from that is really passed through to consumers, thus no cost reductions. And therefore there's really like incremental deployment of the passenger vehicles. And so we don't see very much increase in, in deployment there. In the moderate scenario, we assume that 50% of EVs eventually satisfy the requirements around, again, the sourcing of critical minerals as well as battery components, and that there's a stimulus in the market, um, assuming kind of a the battery PTC value is really passed through, and it combines with greater charter deployment, thus increasing EV shares. And in that moderate scenario, uh, we see that battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles jump up to 29% uh, in 2030 and 34% uh, in terms of sales, which is you know a substantial increase uh, over business as usual. And then the high scenario is really the kind of sky's the limit. We see huge deployment of uh, domestic battery, production tax credit, manufacturing, we basically unlock the U.S. EV market and do all the right things to, to get as many EVs qualifying for the tax credit as possible. And that's where we see a substantial up to a 39% increase in EV sales by 2030. So all three scenarios basically hinge on the passenger vehicle tax credit being deployed at different under different assumptions. Now, the one thing that's pretty constant throughout all three scenarios and, and a very important takeaway is that the light and medium duty truck market is stimulated in all three scenarios because there's a commercial EV tax credit, which we have not had before. So it's actually a very exciting uh, opportunity, kind of has been overlooked in the last few months as people have been really drilling down in how challenging the passenger vehicle tax credit is. But the, the commercial tax credit has none of those restrictions. So we see a huge deployment uh, across the board, substantially higher than what we would expect under business as usual for what are some of the most polluting vehicles on the road.
Yeah, it seems like it's much more straightforward for for the, the medium and heavy duty trucks. And uh, does that does that kind of really dent the emissions problem in a bigger way? Are, are trucks more responsible in a uh, you know big picture way for for a lot of the pollutants and, and CO two out there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they make up a small, a much smaller share of the vehicles, relatively speaking, but they are the largest contributors both to the greenhouse gas emissions and uh, other harmful air pollutants in the transportation sector. So, and that's because most of them use diesel. You know, they're just inherently dirtier. Um, so, getting those vehicles transitioned to cleaner electric uh, vehicles has an immediate impact on climate emissions as well as other air pollutants. Sarah Baldwin is the Electrification Director at the nonprofit think tank, Energy Innovation. She spoke with our own Pete Bigelow on Shift, a podcast about mobility. You can hear their full conversation at autonews.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on electrification, earnings results, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about auto supply and demand with Jeff Schuster, president of global forecasting for LMC Automotive. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.